Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview New York City-based drummer, composer, teacher, and band leader, Allison Miller. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we got the super talented superstar, Allison Miller, here with us. How are you doing, ma'am? I am good. How are you? Great. I'm honored that you're on my show. You've been on the cover like every single jazz magazine I could have ever think of. <laughs> I try not to look. <laughs> really? Why not? No, I'm joking. I'm okay, joking. I was about to say, <laughs> that's an accomplishment. <laughs> so can you give a short introduction or a summary about yourself to the people, please? Sure. My name is Allison Miller, as mentioned before, and I am a drummer. I'm also a composer and arranger and teacher, educator, uh, and I like to direct things. I'll say that. Um, I like to collaborate and create with others. And um, let's see, I am originally from outside of D.C. in Maryland and uh, really grew up playing jazz in D.C. from a pretty young age. I was uh, 14 when I started gigging and... um, Moved to New York when I was 21, and I have been making music and creating and uh, teaching ever since. Okay. Yeah. Well, ma'am, i first known of you since I think it was 2012 with the Tiny Desk concert you put on, which ah. was, yeah. And I was like, yeah, I need to follow her since. <laughs> and you currently have a new album out with a serious lineup. Please tell people about that. Yes, I am a proud member of the band Artemis, and uh, we are, you know, a group of musicians and friends who have decided to come together and make music and write music together and write music for the band. We have a new record out on Blue Note Records. It came out on September 11th, and, you know, I'm really proud of this, this band and this music. The musical director of the band is Rini Rosnes on piano, who's one of my personal heroes. She's a real master musician. And then the front line is Melissa Aldana on tenor saxophone, Ingrid Jensen on trumpet, Anat Cohen on clarinet. And uh, teaming up with me in the rhythm section is Noriko Ueda on bass. And then we also have the uh, stellar absolutely virtuosic singer Cecile McLaurin Salvant. Pretty much the top females in jazz right now. And I must say, I love my females in jazz. I just feel sometimes you guys don't get the push or respect in the front lines, but I've been seeing that changing more and more recently. But anyone that hasn't heard this album, I seriously suggest you check it out. So Mm. over how long of a course did it take you to record it? (laughs) Well, I mean, as you can imagine, that band uh, isn't the easiest band to get together. We all have our, we're basically all band leaders, really. And we all have our own careers. And we also, uh, you know, I would say every, you know, every email thread that goes around trying to, you know, set on a schedule involves about five managers or six managers and lots of different people, you know, so there's, there are a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but, um, you know, we made it happen. I mean, the, the band first started touring in 2017 and I guess it was a year ago, uh, the end of August, early September, 2019, that we recorded the record. And, um, you know, we basically, I guess the, you know, it took Rini about, a month to, to nail down a time that we were all available. And then we set the date. And then from there, we had a couple months to each write music for the project. And um, I guess we did maybe three or four days of rehearsal before the record. And then we did the record in, recorded the album in three days, I think. Something like that. Nice. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, I have to, maybe it was two days. I mean, it was fast, you know? I mean, but we really, 
we really do have a chemistry, you know, and we've, even though we, we don't play together full, like all year round, we, we come together and every time we do, it just gets deeper. The music gets deeper. And, um, the connection was really natural in the studio. I have to say like, you know, I, I've done lots of records and, and, um, as you might know, I cross over to other genres. And so I've, I've been hired to do a lot of other records, you know, singer songwriter records and more mainstream records. So, um, you know, I know immediately when it feels awkward in the studio and then I and I definitely welcome when it feels really good and for this record it just felt good from from the first downbeat of the first song it just felt amazing and we had such a good time in the studio so whose idea originally was it to put it together like to come up with the idea yeah uh well it was actually a uh, a promoter in a european promoter a french promoter had reached out to Rini in 2016, um, asking her to put together an all-woman project just for two shows, for two concerts in Europe. And that was kind of the birth of the idea. I was not on that concert. The drummer was Terry Lynn Carrington, who's one of my big heroes. Um, And so they did those concerts. They went really well. And then the promoter asked Rini to, if she wanted to do a whole month-long tour the next summer. So she put together the band and um, that's when she called me to do it. And, um, you know, it was interesting because my, I, I actually couldn't make the first, uh, I think the, the whole tour was a five week tour, but my son had just been born maybe three months before that. And so I, when she asked me, of course I wanted to do it, but I said, you know, I, I can't leave my son for five weeks. <laughs> um, so, she was really cool about that. And and she just had me come in for three weeks of the tour. And our first show was at North Sea Jazz Festival, no rehearsal. I just jumped on stage with the band and it felt amazing. Um, that was your first show. That was my first show. My North Sea Jazz Festival uh, wow. in front, in front of thousands <laughs> of people. And, and of all people, Chikoria was standing side stage listening. <laughs> so anyone in doubt that just proves these females are that good. They're just that good. <laughs> okay, so you didn't even look at the charts in the practice. You just said, yeah, I got this, and you just pulled it, pulled it out. Yeah, I mean, she sent me some charts, and I just went for it, you know? <laughs> that's kind of, I mean, that's jazz, you know? That's jazz right there. You, you, you learn the language, you learn how to speak the language, and then you can kind of speak it, hopefully, with anybody else that's learned the language. Like I said, that's amazing. So what got you into jazz music? Actually, what, what, when did you decide to become a drummer, a percussionist? I think I always just knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, my mom is a musician. She's a sacred musician, a church uh, pianist and uh, choir director. And she said that I wanted to drum from the time I could talk. <laughs> um and at the time, you know, I was obviously very young, but she, and she was supportive, but she wanted me to learn how to play piano first and how to and sing, not how to sing. She wanted me to sing. So I really, my first musical experience was singing in the church with my sisters when I was really young. And then um, I learned piano from her. And then in fourth grade, I was, they let me start playing drums and um, I started in the school band, you know, I had like a little snare drum and I would carry my snare drum to school with me. And um, I was obsessed. Like from the very beginning, I would write little snare duets. I remember I had this little boyfriend named David (laughs) and he and I, he was a drummer too. And uh, I would write little snare duets for us and we would play snare duets together. (laughs) That's- <laughs> it was, Le- Leander, it was very romantic. <laughs> I must say, <laughs> making music together at such a young age. <laughs> uh, okay. So when you were at least starting up in the music thing, none of the boys were like, this is a female drummer? Or were you just killing it from that age too? No, I mean, nobody said anything to me. I, you know, I don't know if I was just oblivious. I mean, you know, my parents really raised me in a way that 
just and just gave us just like in, just embrace your power, embrace your um, passion, do what you want to do. They kind of raised us in that way. You know, I'm I come from a family of three girls, and uh, you know, my parents are pretty in some ways, pretty traditional. They're Southern, you know, from the South. Um, I was actually born in Texas and they were raised in Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, they were raised pretty traditional, but they they weren't traditional with us in a sense. And they really, really encouraged us to go for what we wanted to do in life. And um, they encouraged us to be confident and to speak our voices. So, I'm really grateful to them for supporting me in my um, mission <laughs> to play, to be a, a rhythm maker, you know, and uh, I, I don't remember anybody ever in the, when I was young telling me that I was a girl and I shouldn't play the drums or that that was a strange thing. Uh, it just seemed like the most natural thing for me to do. I loved it so much and I accelerated pretty quickly as a, as a drummer. So I don't remember anything. The only time that I remember kind of people starting to point that out was when I went to college. And that's when I felt like people were making a bigger deal about the fact that I was a girl or, you know, young woman than I ever even thought about, you know, because, you know, we're women. We don't, I don't, I'm just who I am. I don't think about my gender. I just, I play my music, you know, so you know, it wasn't until I became an adult that it really got pointed out. And I also, you know, Lander, I should say, I was very much a tomboy when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. So all of my best friends were boys and I played with cars. I played with, I played football. I was like the, in my neighborhood, you know, but, you know, I'm talking, you know, young before the boys got bigger than I was, but like, (laughs) you know, I was, I was like the, the, the neighborhood running back. Like I was always the running back and we played touch football. We actually, we played tackle football too. And, you know, before puberty and I was just one of the boys, you know, so I never really thought about it. I just played music and played sports and uh, chased my, my uh, next door neighbor um, friend around with worms. I was a little, you know, I had this, I, my best friend was my next door neighbor. Her name was Stephanie. And I would chase her and her brother around with frogs and worms because they thought that they, I somehow I made them believe that they would get warts from frogs. So I just uh, would chase them around. <laughs> well, okay. That's, that's cool, man. So where did you go for undergrad? I went to um, West Virginia University, which is really a a state school in West Virginia. And I actually studied classical music. I studied, um, I have like a a bachelor's uh, fine arts degree in classical music. Um, And at that time, it felt like the right thing to do because I had already been gigging in DC since I was 14. And I really wanted to learn how to Uh, play mallet instruments. And at that school at the time, they had a really great world music department. So I spent a lot of time um, learning how to play steel drums, learning how to build steel drums, um, learning how to play a lot of West African music um, and also Indonesian gamelan music and Japanese music. So it was a it was a really, in, for, for being in such a kind of rural area, it had, it was kind of a hotbed of world percussion at the time. The, the head of the percussion department, you know, traveled continuously throughout her, his career and would um, study music from around the world and also bring instruments back to the school from around the world. Okay, so will you remember the marching band there? Because they actually, at least now, they have a good line. I don't know about back then. Man, I, I had like a, it's funny you say that. I had like an aversion to the marching band. I think it came from when I was in um, high school because my freshman year of high school, uh, my band director said, if you want to be in um, jazz band, you have to, and or con- and concert band, you have to do marching band. And I thought that was ridiculous. <laughs> And I, you know, my teacher, and he made me, so I did it my freshman year, but I, I really, I have to tell you, I really didn't like it. And it wasn't because I didn't like 
the music, I just felt like it was too, at least where I went to school, it felt too rigid to me. Like, and I didn't like carrying the uh, drum. <laughs> were you playing snare? snare? Were you playing tenors? What were you playing? Oh, I played tenors. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I feel well, you. we, we, yeah, yeah. We called it, you know, we called them quads, and um, I, you know, I just, I, I loved playing, but it just felt a little rigid to me. Like I wanted to play more. Um, I wanted to have, I wanted the music to have more swing to it, and maybe if I had gone to a different high school, it would have had more swing, but it didn't. It didn't have more swing. So. Okay, fair. fair yeah, fair. yeah. So you coming from DC to New York? Yes. What was the first thing that hit you about the jazz scene? Wow, you're taking me back. Um, well, I moved to New York in 1996, and the scene felt uh, it felt so alive and so vibrant, and it felt like its own being. You know, like it. I just, I loved it so much. I mean, I, I really fell in love with New York and I feel like at the time it was, it was kind of right before people started actually owning cell phones. I mean, people, some people had cell phones, but no one used them. And, uh, and definitely people weren't as attached to, uh, email as they are today, you know? So, uh, the hang, I mean, the hang was so good. You know, it was in, it was back when Smalls was, didn't even have a liquor license, you know, like you had to buy, you had to buy your, your, your bag of beer at the bodega and then go to Smalls, you know, it was like a, it was a real vibe. It was a time where you could just go to the Vanguard and say, I'm a student and they would let you in for free. You know, um, there were sessions that went all night, every night, and it's not like there aren't those, well, there's nothing right now, but it it's not like there isn't that now in pre-pandemic times, but there was something about the community of the scene back then that felt so alive to me. And it just, it, it felt friendly and open and swinging. Like there was such a, there was such a value put on just, the feel of the music and the soul of the music and making the music speak and having a conversation with others on stage, you know, and um, there was more, I, I feel like, and I'm going to date myself a little, but I feel like there was more space in the music. The, the music felt less academic to me when I first moved to New York and it felt more soulful. You're not the first person to say that. So I could honestly believe that. <laughs> You know, the this, this city's become too expensive. That's another problem. You know, the, you know, it's not a city of artists anymore. It's a city of lawyers and bankers. So that's the problem. You know, like when I moved to New York, I lived in Hell's Kitchen and I paid $225 a month wow. for my rent. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I didn't have to get a, a day job. Like I could, I could place, I could play in like, the countless little bars in the East Village that had jazz every night, and I could play in the subways, um, and I could do some some wedding gigs here and there, and then a, a tour here and there, you know, and I could get by. And then that gave me the creative agency I needed to actually practice my instrument and, and take lessons from my heroes and and spend the time on on the the craft so I could get better. You know, I feel I feel for young musicians who move to New York now because. You know, unless they come for money, they're they that's, don't stand a chance. That's you know, what the jazz scene's turning into. I, I know, say it like that. But mm. two fifty? Is this a studio, a one bedroom, is it <laughs> roommates? What was this? <laughs> you know, you would not want to go there. I mean, I'll, I'll put it. I, I will put it out there. It was not. Uh, it was not an apartment that I could probably step foot in now, gotcha. <laughs> but, okay. but it was fine. You know, it's actually, it's, it's on, the building is on 10th Avenue and on the corner of 10th Avenue and 34th street. It's the only building still standing on that block. It's surrounded by high rises, yes. but for some reason it's still there. And in the front of it, um, there's a, an old tire shop that's still there. And, 
I don't know how it's still, it's still standing, but it is. But it was a tiny little place next to an all-night gas station. And my, my bed was right next to an, the, uh, the vacuum, you know, those vacuum cleaners at the all-night gas stations, the, um, you know, the free vacuums. That, yes. that, so, that so my, yeah, oh yeah, I mean, I was up at that, I mean, I was 21. I was up all night, every night, you know, listening and playing jazz. But, but it was that, that vacuum cleaner was right next to my head. I'll never forget that. <laughs> like I said, that, that is amazing in its own way. So <laughs> Allison Miller comes up here from DC, hits the jazz clubs. What were people's first impressions? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you don't know? No one said anything? I mean, I started getting hired, you know, like, I think that's probably a good, a good sign, you know, um, I think that there was probably maybe a little buzz, you know, I mean, for me, I just loved the music so much. And I, I just, I was in cloud nine because I was like living, breathing jazz and I was living, breathing New York, which I, you know, I was, I was not hip to New York, even though I grew up very close to New York. I just never, I really, I never visited New York. You know, my, my, I lived just enough outside of DC that um, it was very pretty rural at the time. I lived on a little farm and I, I kind of had, you know, it was interesting. I I was kind of a country girl that played jazz in DC, you know? And so when I moved to New York, I had never felt such an urban environment and I had never felt, I, I have never, I had never felt that feeling that New York has where it's, a city that people are really going for what they want and they're pushing boundaries and creating new art. And that for me was so exciting. And I, the, I felt like, wow, you could, you could come to New York and be exactly who you want to be. And, and no matter how out it is, there's going to be other people doing it too. You know, (laughs) like that's how I felt. And I, I just loved it so much. And, you know, I think, I started getting hired, you know, pretty quickly um, by really great musicians. So I guess that, I guess that I was making an impression, you know, and I, I, um, I loved to swing back then. I still love to swing, but I just loved like, you know, when I moved to New York, I, I kind of had an ego and I thought I could swing really hard and I was pretty much schooled right away. Like, Hey, you're, you're good, but you're not, that you're good. not, you're not that good. And you're not swinging like, New, like we swing in New York, you know? So, you know, I, I, I was smart though. I was really driven and um, kind of had endless energy and I got with the right, you know, I got with some really important teachers at a, from it right when I moved to New York and that really helped me. Which teachers? Well, I, I started with um, studying with Dion Parsons and then he then, passed me on to his teacher. And then, so then I studied with Michael Carvin, who became really my big mentor in my life. And he still is. Uh, I studied with Michael. Then I studied with Lenny White, who became another big mentor to me. And he also produced my first record. Um, And those were the, those were the main three teachers that I studied with. Okay. So Lenny didn't produce the Boom Tick Boom, the first one? No, Lenny produced a record, my very first record called 5AM Stroll. And that record has Ray Drummond on it, Steve Wilson, Bruce Barth, and Virginia Mayhew on that record. That's another good lineup. Nice. Yeah. You know, that, that record's not really available digitally. Very, you know, it's, not, it's not available online. It's only on CD. Gotcha. So people have to go to your website to buy that one, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Everyone go check that one out. That's one I didn't know about. Okay. So interesting. So how did you come up with Boom Tick Boom? Uh, well, I haven't thought about that in a while, actually. Uh, you know, initially it was, um, you know, I was thinking about the drums and what I like about drumming. And I was thinking about the, the dynamic range of the drums. And that for me is, is, um, 
kind of an essential element of what I think makes drums makes the drum set a powerful instrument is the the ability to like to drop a bomb, right? To play a boom, like a really resonant low boom, but then to have that juxtaposition of a different texture, like a metallic texture that's a hi-hat or a cymbal, and that's the tick, you know? So initially it was kind of like, it was a it was a three-word description of, of the power and the, the versatility that the drum set can offer. Um, boom, tick, boom, you know? And I like the way it sounds. Um, and also it's kind of a, you know, like a little bit of a, uh, praise to other drummer led bands, you know, like Max Roach, um, you know, he had, he had his band, like the boom part is also like his band, you know, um, boom. Um, yeah, I guess that's where it came from and kind of playing with dynamic range. I always think about, you know, with, with that band, boom, tick, boom. Um, I really like to focus on dynamics and I like to play with the the power of like an extreme dynamic shift. So going from like forte or fortissimo to pianissimo. And I also, you know, I have violin in my band. So it really um, sets up this environment where I really actually have to play very quietly sometimes. That's and my I really next question: a percussionist drummer choosing a violinist. Yeah, <laughs> you know. I, it's kind of started just because Jenny is, I mean, you know, it's funny. I don't, I don't really particularly hear violin. Like I, I don't think I would hire, like if Jenny can't do a show, it's not, I'd almost just rather not have violin in the band. You know, I really have violin because I love the way Jenny plays. So, and I love the way she approaches music and, and I, I also don't, you know, honestly, I think for the first three records or four records, I really had no idea how to write for violin. And, and it was, it was so funny because for my last record, I actually called Jenny and I said, Hey, what, um, what are some of your favorite keys to play in for violin? You know, I'm like, I really want to write, write for you better, you know? And she was like, you're asking me this and it's our fifth record. (laughs) She's like, she's like, why didn't you ask me this on the first record? You know? Um, she's like, you're always writing in impossible keys for me. And I was like, oh, well just tell me and I'll do it. You know? And so I, I really started, I really kind of had violin in the band just because I, you know, she's one of my best friends and I love making music with her. And so that's how it started. And then as it's grown, and how and as my band has gotten bigger, I now I really love it. Like I love that. Um, I love the textures that she brings to the band, and I love how she can be really out front and energetic, or she can kind of bring in these these underlying um, harmony parts that can be mysterious and whimsical, but also really raw and powerful. She's a, she's a very, I mean, everybody in my band is a powerful musician and most of them are all band leaders as well. Um, so I just really encourage each band member to just play, be who they are and just speak their, speak their language and be themselves. Okay. So what is something that like you notice from the academic world going into the professional freelance world? Oh, well, the academic world going into the professional freelance world. Yeah, you know, I'm going to go back to this idea of soul and space (laughs) and kind of speaking your truth and being okay with the music being human and being organic. And I, I think one of the things that bothers me as of late, and I'm as of late, I mean, in the last 10 to 15 years, um, is that the music for me, when it, when it starts to sound too academic and when the music starts to be only developed in academia, it starts to feel sterile and it starts to veer away from humanity. And, it loses its message, you know, like 
for me, this music, it's not about playing the chord changes. It's not about playing perfectly. It's about making a statement and connecting your music to your beliefs and your beliefs and desires for social change. And this music is a, you know, I think it's, when it's coming from academia and when you, when you see, when you look at a lot of academic jazz programs, it's changed. You know, I will say this, things are changing slowly, Mm -hmm. but when you look at a lot of academic programs and you look at the faculty, you basically see one type of person. You see older white men and that is not jazz. Jazz is black music, you know, and it needs to be taught by the people that created it. It's, and I'm not saying it's, I mean, I, here I am, I'm a white person saying this, but it's true. This this is the great American, jazz is a great American music and it's a great American black music. So it needs to be respected in that sense. And I think what happens is when the music is taught by people that actually aren't doing it all the time, like living it, you know, when you, let's say you go, I'm, I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm going to say a school in the middle Midwest. Okay, the Midwest um, I'm just, I don't know. I'm no, making no, something go, up. I'm, I'm making this up. So a school in the Midwest, uh, you know, they, it's a faculty of jazz, you know, they have a jazz program and there are, let's say eight faculty members and let's and none of maybe one or two of them, they're adjunct faculty. And actually, most I mean, a lot of schools have adjunct faculty now. But most of let's say two of them are adjunct faculty, and they're the only ones that are gigging. But they're and so they're out there actually doing this music on stage for people in con, you know in concert, which is really the only way to learn this music is to do it on stage and to like do it in clubs, right? And mentor from your heroes. So. They're doing that, but they're only hired to come in and give private lessons once every two weeks or something, right? Then all the other jazz programs in that school are taught by full-time faculty members who actually don't play music for a living. So they're teaching jazz from a standpoint that doesn't really, doesn't really understand the music. Like that's a problem to me, you know, and that needs to be remedied if we're going to be teaching jazz in school. And obviously that's what's happening, right? So you, when you get these students coming out of school and they all want to move to New York to do jazz, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they finish their degree. They can play anything, right? They have like more technique than you can even imagine. And they come to New York and there's, but they're not saying anything. They don't understand the other side of this music is that it has to be human. It has to have, uh, it, there has to be uh you have to take chances in the music. You have, you're having a conversation with other people. You're not just playing uh, verbatim what you learned. You know, it's not about that. It's about life. And so. I, mean, um, I understand what you mean. So the person who doesn't play an instrument, try to explain it in a way they could get it. If possible, because okay. that's something I couldn't do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, it's like, It's okay. Here's an example. You know, you can't like, okay. Sometimes when I'm, when I'm, when I'm teaching, I'll say um, to a student, uh, Hey, what, what's a, what's the blues? Tell me about the blues, you know? And they're like, well, it's a 12, three chords, starts with three chord chain, three chords. And it's 12 bar blues. Like they describe it as if it is, um, a, a piece of music, a sheet piece of sheet music that they're analyzing. And that is actually not what the blues is. And they don't understand where the blues comes from, right? So that's an issue because, I mean, I'm sure most people have heard this. You can't play the blues unless you've experienced the blues, you know? And um, it's very much connected to uh, Black American history and the history and, and civil rights, you know? And a lot of students do not understand that because they're not being taught that. They're not connecting music to life and to social justice. And that's a problem. I mean, there are people out there who are really making a difference. And, you know, for instance, Terry Lynn Carrington, 
started her school for jazz and gender justice, right, um, at Berkeley. And that's incredible. Like, she is doing incredible work to empower uh, young women, but also empower uh, not just young women, you know, gender fluidity, social justice, civil rights. You know, she's doing great work. Uh, Danila Perez is doing great work up there. I mean, there are people doing great work. Sean Jones is doing great work at Peabody. They're doing great work at Juilliard. Um, uh, but more work needs to be done, you know, because this music has to the only way this music moves forward and continues to exist is by community and by mentorship, you know, and by um, people passing on the tradition to other people. And it's not done in school. It's done on the stage. It's done in life. And um, I'll give a perfect example. So let's see. I was, I've been thinking about Elvin Jones a lot and, um, I feel really lucky that I was able to see him play a lot before he passed. And I will say that when I, last time I saw him play was at the Blue Note. And I went to the show and he, it was, I can't remember exactly when it was, but it was not too long before he passed. And he made his way to the stage. You can tell he wasn't doing well physically. And then he sat down, it took, you know, it took him a while to, to get to the drums and he seemed pretty feeble, you know, and then he sat down and it was like, it was pure magic. He, you know, he counted off the band and he hit the downbeat on the, on the, on the ride symbol, right? Ride symbol in the bass drum. Mm -hmm. And it was as if the heavens opened. It was like, it was one note, not, that's it, right? One note with some space afterwards. And it was the most powerful, uh, spiritual, deep note I have ever heard in my life. And the, you can't, like, and then he came alive. It was like he was 30, you know? It was like he, it was like you could see all of the the physical pain and kind of the the issues he was, the health issues he was having. You could just see it dissipate and the music took over and it was just pure emotion and fire and energy. And that, that to me is not academic. That is, <laughs> that is soulful. That is something mystical that you can't even explain. That comes with, you know, all of his life experiences and all of his musical experiences all rolled into one, you know, and that stuff is not, it's not explained. It's just, it just is, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a really hard thing to explain to a non-musician. Okay. So that was too much for me to ask. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but I mean, you could feel it. Like if you're, if you have a heartbeat, you could feel that difference, you know, because you're moved by it, you know, like, and I, as a musician, when I play with someone on stage who is having a conversation with me, a musical conversation and who's giving me like raw emotion, mm -hmm. then I, I feel it and I get fired up and I want it. But if I play with, let's say a saxophone player who just starts, who just gives me a wall of notes and no interaction and just, it's almost like I could be a backing track and there's no communication happening on stage. That means nothing to me. Like I don't, I'd rather have one, I'd rather have a saxophone player hold one note but do it with a lot of intention and communication and like just hold that note and create that tension. That to me is exciting and, and energetic and makes me want to speak to them musically back, you know, and have a, have a conversation, have a push and pull. That's the real, that's where the real like heart of the music is. And that's where the real special quality of the music is. You know, I think it's like a, it's like, attention and release in the music. And, you know, we're all just trying to make our instrument be one with us. You know, we're trying to speak our truth through our instrument, you know, yeah. that's actually, you know, now after, after I've been going off for, I don't even know how long I've been talking about this, but the, when it comes down to it, it's like, I just want to hear musicians speak their truth. That's it. And it doesn't matter 
how many notes you play. That's the thing. Or it doesn't matter if you play perfectly in tune, or it doesn't matter if your time is perfect. And what happens in academic situations is the people come out of those schools being able to play anything, like perfectly. But what that does is it takes away the soul of the music and then it doesn't move me. Like I get bored, you know, and then I, and then I can't hear a melody. I can't hear a groove. Like, you know, I don't care if the music changes meters every two bars, but if it's not saying anything, then why do it? You know, um, I was a couple of years ago, I was on a panel with the great William Parker, who's one of my heroes. I don't know if you know William Parker, but uh, incredible avant-garde jazz bassist and, and just, him. yeah, community builder, everything. He's amazing. But I was on a panel with him and we were listening to all this music and, um, uh, we had to listen to a, a lot of music over a five day period. And about day three, um, he, he just turned to me and he said, I'm still waiting to hear something that makes me want to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> and I thought that was so amazing. Cause it was true. You know, like we just want to hear some music that moves us and we haven't heard it yet. Like we've been listening for three days, you know, and we've been hearing music that, but that could be for a lot of reasons. Like you said, the young artists don't have an opportunity to develop their sound. They probably don't have the money to record. A whole bunch of variables could be the reason. It's all it's all of that. You're totally right. You're totally right. Like they don't have the money. They don't they can't afford to be living in New York. They um there aren't enough gigs, you know, that's another problem. I mean, They're not out Corona, I don't know how much less gigs we're gonna have. Yeah, yeah, I know. But but even like, you know, I compare from when I moved to New York, like I was gigging every night of the week, you know, like I had a gig. I Sometimes I had three gigs in a night, you know, because there were so many little gigs happening, you know, and that's definitely not the case now. And, you know, you're right. Like they don't, they don't have it. They're not playing as many gigs to cut their teeth and maybe they're not being hired by as many um, of their heroes. Like that's, I feel like that's where you cut your teeth. You know, like for me, when I was young, um, there were a few really special music band, like, you know, artists who hi started hiring me from a young age and really schooled me in a way that I really needed, you know, Dr. Lonnie Smith, like that was a huge step for me to tour with him for three years and make a record with him, you know, um, uh, Marty Ehrlich, great avant-garde saxophone player. He, he hired me when like nobody was hiring me on that scene in the downtown scene. Like, no, I was just playing straight ahead, but he's, he wanted, he, he liked my sound and he liked my approach to the music. So he started hiring me, you know? So, you know, I, I think a lot of young musicians don't have that. So what that, advice would you give young musicians right now? I would, I would say to young musicians that right now during COVID is the perfect time to reach out to your heroes and, and mentor with them, take lessons from them. You know, the, the thing about this time is that we're all in the same boat. Like every musician is kind of in the same boat. We're stuck at home. We can't play shows. Like we're all dying to communicate and to interact with other musicians. And so, you know, like for instance, any drummer, any drummer could send me an email and I'd be like, yes, of course, let's do a Zoom hang. Let's do a lesson. Like, it's like, I am wanting to reach out and like, and connect and learn and pass on my knowledge and experience. So I would say to young musicians, now's the time to really kind of make those connections, even though we can't actually be in the same room together. It's a really important time for that. And, and now's a great time for creative making. I mean, I've been, I, I actually got hired to write a bunch of music uh, for, uh, for something else, but it's like inspired me to write really uh, religiously. So like every morning I'm writing and it's really interesting what's coming out right now. It's very different than my normal process. And it's definitely been affected by my, my experience during the pandemic. So we're going to get a nice, interesting album in a few months. <laughs> You're going to get a very aggressive album, I think. And I love it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so can you tell us about the other projects you worked on? Uh, you mean throughout just in yeah, general? Not or? jazz. Let's so oh. people know what to check out. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. Not jazz or in jazz? Oh, whichever you wish. Oh, okay. I didn't hear. I, w- I wasn't sure if you said in jazz or not jazz. Um, well, I mean, I have many. I have the Artemis group. Um, I've also collaborated in, on, in other bands um, and that co- kind of co-leading, which I really like to do. I'm in a band with... Uh, that I co-lead with Jenny Scheinman called Parlor Game. And we put out a record last year. Uh, I have another project called Science Fair that I did with um, one of my favorite pianists, Carmen Stoff. And that that record came out in 2018, I think. I've, I've had a pretty busy few years. Um, and that record is really fun. We both wrote music for it and we worked together to arrange the music and the it's the band is great. Um, uh, Ambrose Akinmusery is on it, and Dana Stevens, and Matt Penman, and me and Carmen, and that's a fun record. I also really love to work with dancers and choreographers. Um, I'm musical director for three different choreographers, and uh, my the latest piece that I helped write and create as a piece called Ink by um, the great choreographer Camille a. Brown. And that was a real honor to work on. And I also was a musical director and composer for um, another piece, a tap piece called And Still You Must Swing, and another piece that involves tap dance and Indian Katak music called Speak. So I, I've definitely... I'm definitely busy. <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I, I've always loved all types of music, and I, I really believe that music needs to be connected to dance, and so I really do make a kind of an effort to connect with my dancing sisters and brothers, you know. And I, you know, I really, I kind of believe in um, manifesting what you. You, what you what you want in life in a way and um, I really made a kind of a conscious decision to put myself out there to connect with more dance and it really worked like now I'm I'm in I'm collaborating with dancers all the time okay so you, yeah so you're telling me if you had a dream project you would include dancers in it and a whole bunch of Leander I I, I forgot to tell you I just did that I actually, so, you know, it's, it's so funny because, because of the pandemic, I feel so, uh, far from my touring life, you know, but right before the pandemic hit, I premiered a new piece that I had, that I got a a composition commission for, and the piece is called Rivers in Our Veins, and it's about, um, kind of American waterways and, the biodiversity and the diversity that it, uh, that our waterways have promoted and that we need to preserve our, our natural waterways. Um, and the, it's a, it's a 75 minute suite of music that features my band and also features tap dance. And it's really, and it's, it's tap dance, my band, Boom Tick Boom and video. And we premiered it right before the pandemic hit. Um, so there isn't, you know, I haven't made a record yet. I want to. Okay, so <laughs> but, I was going to ask, where could we see this, hear it? Yeah, I mean, there's a, we're about to finish up like a a promo video for it, you know, so it'll be just a three minute short of the, of the piece. But my goal when we can get together is to actually make a record and possibly, um, like release videos that go along with the release of the record. So we're going to get a series. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So Allison, before you go, we'd like to give a shout out and show respects to artists who came before us or are still on the scene. I'm going to give you an instrument and two artists. Choose one and tell us why. Okay. Okay. On trumpet, Dolly Jones or Stacey Rowland. Wow. Wow. You're picking two artists that I don't know that well. Okay. So we can yeah. skip that one if you want. No, 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 no. I mean, yeah. Wow. What? Tell me. Why don't you tell, will you tell me about these artists? I mean, I know who they are. I just don't know a lot about them. 
Uh, which part? Who do you want me to start? With? I, I start with Dolly. Yeah. Okay, so Dolly was a trumpet player who passed, I believe, in the eighties or seventies, and she was one of the first female jazz trumpet players to be recorded. Wow. Yes. Okay. So she was pre Louis Armstrong era. She has a few tracks out there, but she was known in the Apollo theater scene. And I guess that was a reach because I was hoping you would know of her. Mm. Nah, not at all, right? No, I mean, I no, I'm as I'm ashamed. <laughs> it's wow, game. I got to do my, you know, I need to do my homework better. And Stacy Rollins was. I know, St- I know yeah. who Stacy Rollins is, but I, I'd like to, I'd like you to, to uh, tell me about her as well. Okay, so pretty much she was. How should I put it? She was a singer player, singer also, but she was a trumpet player, and she played pretty much most of the horns. And I know of her because my teacher had a whole bunch of Montreal and Montreal Jazz Festival videos, and she performed with her father at the time, and her father was with uh, Clark Terry. Wow. Wow. And then, you know, Clark Terry has always been a big supporter of women artists. Yes, that is you know? true. I think he had an all-women's band, right? Yeah, or he I think promoted so. one. He maybe, yeah. I mean, I know he hired Terry Lynn Carrington from a really young age, and um, and Sylvia Cuenca, great drummer. Lots of lots of women came up through under him, and and um, he's really supported a lot of women. Mm-hmm. I think of him and um, you know, um, uh, Dr. Billy Taylor as well was a big supporter of of women artists and um, Kenny Barron is a big supporter of women artists. Uh, there's Herbie Hancock, yeah, Herbie you know, yes. Wayne Shorter, Joe Henderson, um, Ron Carter, you know, the, the masters, you know, they, the, I think it was Rini, Rini always says, you know, um, I have, oh man, I, I wish I could remember the exact Wayne quote, but um Something like music knows no gender. <laughs> I believe you know? it doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Basically, if you could, if you play and you got something to say, that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. So on saxophone, I'm pretty sure you know these two: Rolanda mm-hmm. Brown or Tia Fuller. What was the first? Who was the first one? Rolanda. Aha! Uh-huh. So I can pick one. Yes. Okay. Uh, I mean, I have to talk about Tia Fuller. Tia Fuller is she is everything. Um, I mean, I love her sister too, Shami Royston. Uh, but Tia, for me, is one of those beings. She's just, be, she's beyond just a saxophone player. She is a force and she is such a wonderful role model for all musicians. And her positive spirit and her love of the music and her love of, of, of uh, herself, you know, like she's a very confident, open person. And that comes out in her music. Um, she loves the music. She loves humanity. She is uh, versatile. You know, she's really been smart and dedicated to her career and, establishing her voice on the instrument. She swings so hard. Um, her sound is beautiful. Uh, she, she's like, a, she, it's like, she's like a, I, I would think of like f- float like a butterfly, sing like a bee, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that to me is like Tia Fuller, you know, swinging so hard and knows how to just can, can musically just float over everything and then just hit you with like some of this most, Hard, most hardest swinging lines you've ever heard. Uh, I love Tia. I love working with Tia. I love hanging with Tia. You know, she's just the best. I, it's funny. I don't see her very often, but every time we do, it's as if we never stopped hanging out. You know, she's that kind of person. Okay. Yeah, I love her. I never met her, but that's interesting to know. Okay, that's deep. <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, I don't know, music and, I feel like people's music they make, it, it showcases their personality. Like you can get a little bit of a peek into someone's personality by the way they play. If you really, if you listen, you know, mm-hmm. that's how I feel. Okay. So yeah. I'm based then. 
Oh. Esperanza Spartan or Linda O? I have to pick one? Yes. I know. <laughs> oh, man. Um, uh, I mean, I- I'll pick... Um, I'll pick Linda. I love them both. I will pick Linda only because I have played with Linda um, a few, uh, I've played with Linda many times. And so I feel a certain, um, you know, we've, 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 we've been in the rhythm section together. So we have that, that thing, the bass drummer thing, you know, um, Linda swings so hard. She is absolutely, um, fully dedicated to her craft and her art. And she is virtuosic. I mean, both Esperanza and Linda are virtuosic, you know, um, they're incredible. They're absolutely dedicated to their creative vision and where their artistic development takes them. I love Linda's composing. Uh, I think she's one of the most prolific, uh, modern composers out there. I also love that she is able to ride that line of being a side musician and a band leader. I think that's a difficult thing to do. And she, she is, she does it all with grace and she is, uh, such a kind, open-hearted person, you know, I mean that for me, that's very important. It's not just about music. It's about being an evolved person and open-hearted and curious. Okay. And like I said, it's your opinion. So that's great insight on it. So, on keys, Alice Coltrane or Mary Williams? You mean Mary Lou Williams? Yes, Mary Lou. Yes. Oh, my God. Why do I have to pick one? <laughs> um, wow. I mean, I have to say... Am I basing... Wait, let me... Leander, let me ask you this again, because this is a, this is a real tough one. Mm-hmm. Why am I, why do I have to pick one? <laughs> okay, fine. I give you a skip on this one. Okay, but you're only allowed one skip. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll, I'll talk about Mary Lou Williams. Okay. She's, she's probably, I would say she's my biggest, uh, she's my most influential um, mentors. I, not mentor because I didn't get to actually mentor with her. She's one of my heroes of this music. She is an inspiration to all, all musicians and definitely all women musicians. She's underrated. Um, she's a lot of people know, know Mary Lou Williams, but they don't really know much about her career and her path and how long she was actually making her mark on the music scene. Um, you know, you can hear stuff that she recorded in the thirties and then you go all the way up to like up to um, the eighties when she was making music that was so modern and cutting edge. And she was writing pieces for, um, you know, after she, you know, she took a big sabbatical. She left the business for a long time and became a devout Catholic. And when she came back, she was, she was very um, dedicated to writing vocal choral pieces that kind of um, kind of bridge the gap between her Catholicism and her, her sacred and her non-sacred music. So, and she would write these pieces that were actually so difficult to sing that they, a lot of times they would be recorded, but they, the, the actual singers couldn't do it. You know, it was like the, the, the arrangements were so difficult and challenging for vocalists. And um, she wrote these operas and she wrote um, these big bodies of music that actually a lot of them were never released, you know? And she always stayed true to her vision and it had nothing to do with um, fame or, and nothing to do with commercialism. She wanted her music to stay true to her creative vision. And um, she came against a lot of sexism, a lot of people not understanding who she was. And um, she was so respected by all of the great master musicians, Dizzy Gillespie, 
Thelonious Monk, Bud Powell. She was tight with all of them and um, actually taught them a lot of um, tradition, like harmonic, uh, sorry, a a lot of traditional music theory. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, she's a huge inspiration for me. Last year, uh, I was a artist in residence alongside Derek Hodge for Monterey Jazz Festival. And we actually, he and I came together and curated a piece uh, a, a concert of Mary Lou Williams in tribute to her. And we took a bunch of her music and, you know, honored it and put our spin on it. And it was really one of, I have to say it was one of the highlights of my life to, to be given the platform to actually express my um, gratitude to her in a musical um, environment. It was really amazing. That was a, Far better answer than I could ever ask for. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, I could talk about Mary Lou Williams for hours. I mean, okay. I really, I really, I wish I could have known her. Um, and I have spent a lot of time, you know, look, reading about her, reading her biography, her biography, getting to know as much as I can about her. And, uh, you know, she was really special musician. Okay. So on vocals. We're going to say Nora Jones or Deanne Carl? Um, I'm going to go with Nora Jones. Mm-hmm. Um, Nora Jones, I, I like that she, you know, I love her tone. I love the, 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 the timbre of her voice. I love that she's collaborated with so many people and she's had so many different bands and projects. And um, she really spearheaded a, a movement, like a, a kind of a subgenre of jazz, you know, with that that first record, she, I forget the name of it, but the first record she put out, it was such a huge hit, you know? Um, and a lot of my friends have been in her band. I know, I know her and she's, she's a very um, down to earth kind person. And, and yeah, I love her tone. It's, it's like a, it's warm and, uh, you know, to the point. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. And finally, on drums, Sydney Blackman. And I was going to say Terry, but you, you know you're a big admirer of Terry, so I'm going to say Viola Smith. Wow. Wow, I don't know enough enough about. I mean, I know who Viola Smith is, but I haven't heard enough of her uh, music. So, but I'm going to give big ups to her because uh, you know for being who she is and for doing what she what she did at the time that she did it. You know, um, but yeah. I'll say I'll, I'll talk about Cindy. Okay, so how about I change it? Cindy Blackman or Shelly E. Oh. Sheila E, uh, you mean Sheila E, right? Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Embarrassing. Okay. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, I'm going to have to go with Sheila E because Sheila E is definitely one of the reasons I play the drums. And I, you know, I can't believe it, but I've actually still never met Sheila E. Um, if I was in the same room with her, I would definitely make sure to meet her, but we've never been in the same room together. Um, but Sheila E, uh, basically she played with Prince yes. <laughs> and Prince is my hero. Prince was like my, my num my very first number one love of music. And I was obsessed with Prince in the eighties as a kid. And the reason I, st- one of the first songs I ever learned on the drums was a tune off of uh, Around the World in a Day, a tune called Tambourine. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was Sheila E. playing drums. And that's part of why I learned it, because I was like, oh, this is Sheila E. I love this song. I'm going to learn how to play the drums, play this on drums. I mean, we're talking, I was like 10, you know. Um, And after I learned the song, and years later, I I found out that it actually wasn't Sheila E. playing drums. It was Prince. (laughs) So the very, one of the very first tunes I learned was Prince playing on drums. But then when that, that, I don't know if you remember, I don't know how old you are, but um, there was a, a, one of my favorite records, double record, uh, Sign of the Times, Prince. And 
that record came out and there was a concert movie that came out with it that was in the movie theaters. And I saw, I went to the movie theater to see that and Sheila E is playing drums with him at that time. And she's, she's on that concert movie. And I was, I was so mesmerized by her and blown away by the way she played with him. And she takes this drum solo and where she's at the end of it, she's stands up. They're playing now's the time. Actually they now's do the like, an, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. They do an instrumental and they, they're swinging like really, really up tempo. And then the, she takes this epic drum solo. And at the very end of the solo, she throws her sticks, stands up, and starts playing her cymbals really fast with both of her hands and and with a double bass drum. And her hand, actually, you could actually see her hands start to bleed. <laughs> and I was mesmerized and I just thought, oh my God, this is the best thing I've ever seen. And I was so inspired by her. And she's wearing this amazing outfit. You know, like the whole thing was just, just blew my mind as a, I, I was probably maybe 12 at the time. Um, and ever since then, I've been hugely inspired by her and of course by Prince. So there you go. <laughs> okay. I still like Purple Rain better, just so you know. <laughs> well, Purple Rain is, I mean, Purple Rain is classic. If you want, you know what a record I love? I love Alphabet City. And a lot of people don't like that record. Um, yeah, I was about to go there. Why do you like that? Sorry, one? not Alphabet City. Love Sexy. Love Sexy. Okay. Um, but Alphabet City is on that record. Um, I think that record's amazing because I think the production is incredible. Like when I listen to Prince, I don't just listen to the the songs. I listen to his production values because he was really breaking new ground with production at, at in the 80s. And he was doing things like doubling drum tracks, like live drum tracks with him playing early drum machines with his fingers, you know, and he would do things like panning, he would take like a snare track and double it and then pan it to the left and right channel. So that record to me has these like really cutting edge production values that I, as, as someone who thinks about production and, and has, likes to produce um, for me, that record is a huge influence and kind of what he does with the layering of vocals. And a lot of that record doesn't have any bass on it and you would never know it just by listening. It's a, it's an incredible record and it, it's really a continuous record. Like it, the songs um, blend from one to the next. It's amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, Allison, could you tell the people where to find you, how to contact you, your website, your social media, et cetera? Yeah. All you have to remember is Allie Boom Boom. <laughs> A-L-L-I Boom Boom. And that's basically my Twitter handle. That's my Instagram handle. Um, that's my email, alleyboomboom at gmail.com. Uh, that's it. And I, on Facebook, I'm just Allison. I think it's Allison Miller Drums. Okay. Yeah, my website is allisonmiller.com. Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, Allison, thank you for joining us. Very informative. <laughs> I enjoyed it personally. But oh, yes. Good. Well, everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Have a good day. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>